Horror movies and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week we're going to be talking about insanity. Insanity plays a big part in both Call of Cthulhu and Lovecraft stories. And by extension it's become a big part of horror gaming in general. I mean, I, I don't know about you two, but I find that the game, the, the, the insanity that's referenced in gaming tends to bear little to no resemblance to you know, real-world mental illness. It's very stylized. It pretty much just it's a type of mechanic that a lot of games introduce, rather than actually depicting it in a serious or more accurate fashion. Yes, and I think it reflects the fact that I mean most people haven't necessarily had a lot of contact with mental illness. It's, it's, it's something we kind of imagine we we see it portrayed in Hollywood or in stories and so on. What should we aim for with mental illness or insanity in? Gaming. Call of Cthulhu and, and other similar games make the right decision by not betraying real-world mental illness, because fundamentally I don't think real-world mental illnesses are necessarily going to be a hell of a lot of fun to play. If you're talking about someone who is suffering from a disease, you know, like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or severe depression, obviously it's going to add you know, a lot of facets to the characters, but it won't necessarily make the character... Yeah, a, a lot of fun to play within a game. No, I mean, depression or catatonia or schizophrenia or any of those things that, that cause those kind of issues, as you say, isn't a lot of fun. The things that we perceive as fun, if fun's the right word, characteristics in the game are the kind of manic side, the delusions, hallucinations, hallucinations and mm-hmm. so on, that, that create some interesting story some confusion about what's real and what isn't real in the kind of Philip K. Dick kind of way and so on. The sitting at home, not being able to go out or getting panic attacks and not being able to go into a supermarket, they're not a lot of fun. There's, no. What do I do with that if I get my player character's got that? I don't know. Unless you have all the scenario take place at their home all the time. Yeah. Which is very limiting in itself. Yeah. And and I, I think that's probably also the reason why certainly a lot of horror fiction of Lovecraft's age deals with this you know, abstracted, unrealistic form of mental illness because you know, it, it fits much better into the genre to you know, to have these delusions, to have these these you know, unnatural fears, and you know, for them to be brought about by external events. Because I mean that's another big difference there when you're talking about you know, a lot of psychotic illnesses, for example. You know, the, these are things that people are born with. You know, these these are you inherited diseases or you know diseases people develop throughout their lives they're not generally brought about as a result of external stimuli so it's you know it's it's not like you know i i've, I've seen an unspeakable horror from beyond space and time and suddenly you know i'm manic depressive you know it just doesn't work like that uh, i suppose so i mean i mean people coming back from war and post-traumatic stress syndrome and so yeah. on caused by terrible situations of war or similar um, terrible events can perhaps 
in some instances bring on a similar kind of symptoms yeah i mean they they, they can bring on all sorts of you know uh strange symptoms um but you know they, they're fundamentally something different so you know that, that's a pet peeve of mine for example that you know if i'm looking through a, a game system and it talks about you know a character being exposed to eldritch horrors and developing say schizophrenia as a result I mean, it's, it's possible maybe that, you know, there was some kind of latent psychosis within the character and this brought it out, but, you know, on the whole, it, it doesn't do much for my suspension of disbelief. Yeah, it's too much of an unrealistic jump yeah. to say that A causes X. There should be a lot more in between or something, a more of a harmonious connection between stimuli and effect. But, I mean, if you abstract it to, you know, this old-school idea of insanity, and, you know, they, they, there are certainly similarities with something like post-traumatic stress disorder, then, uh, you know, at least for me, that works a bit better. It's not trying to, you know, make it put a realistic interpretation on things that is just wrong. What's occurring to me when you said we're looking at how Lovecraft portrayed it, it was perhaps the, fine, the, the destiny of some of his protagonists to end up crazy but their madness wasn't portrayed he didn't portray their madness as a as a central theme of his stories i don't think as we see in some films like the machinist throw some other names at me yeah um where the whole the theme is the character's madness and is what we're seeing true or is what we're seeing not true? How much is this guy really real that he's been talking to or is this just the figment of his imagination? Yeah. Lovecraft doesn't really, I don't think, play around with those things. No, he doesn't. I mean, yeah, there, there are bits that that almost touch on it, I suppose, at times. You know, there's the, the delusional aspect of the protagonist, perhaps from the outsider, where he's you know, unaware of what he is, but... You know, whether that's madness or whether that's just you know, complete innocence of his truth. Yeah, it seems more innocence to me. And likewise, Dagon, where you're thinking of the characters um, towards the end of the story where he believes that um, Dagon itself has followed him all the way back to the city, which, at least by the rest of the mythos, would be incredibly unlikely. It's more the fact he's probably just deluded himself that a, a passerby walking, walking by his apartment is actually this thing that he saw out on the island. On the whole, you know, insanity in Lovecraft stories tends to be an end condition. You know, the, mm-hmm. the classic example for me is The Haunter of the Dark, where, you know, as, as the story comes to its climax and, you know, the, the haunter is, is rushing towards the protagonist's window, uh, that, you know, he still carries on writing in his journal, but it just becomes this, this insane screed full of strange references. The hand! The window! <laughs> yeah. The three-lobed um, burning eye. I guess we can take it that Lovecraft's one of Lovecraft's fear was, you know, about his parents and so on, and their downfall to sort of insanity. And yes, and the, the the fact that you know he was worried that it might be within his own blood that this mm. might be his own destiny. Mm-hmm. So yes, yeah, you know, I mean, obviously there is very much the fear of insanity there. So there's that final thing of insanity taking away a person, which is reflected in the game. Yes, ultimately, in, in permanent insanity. Uh, and your investigator is taken out of the player's hands and becomes a, an NPC or a, taken out of the game altogether. But there's the interim step of insanity, whether it be temporary or indefinite, you know, and how is that portrayed? If it's not portrayed so much in Lovecraft's work, how is it portrayed in the kind of things that we want to model? That's quite a good question. I mean, I'm, I'm struggling to think of genre sources that actually you know, re- relate to the kind of shock-induced or, you know, the crumbling psyche that causes these fugue states. I'm sure it does come up every now and then in, in Lovecraftian fiction and stories, but 
I, I can certainly think of horror movies, for example, in which it's happened. Yeah, you know, they, uh, for example, you know, in the Evil Dead films, you know, Ash's mental state is, you know, things begin to fall apart violently around him. You mm. know, he, he becomes very much detached from reality, starts hallucinating, goes into this complete fugue state, uh, has conversations with himself, you know, seeing himself as another person. I could explain the whole of the third film. <laughs> Uh, and we see it in William Friedkin's Bug. Oh, yeah. Quite what is going on. He ends up, well, I won't say how he ends up, but there's a total disjunct between what's real and what isn't real. And, and as a viewer, the thing I like as a viewer, you're not really sure what's real and what isn't real and how much of this kind of paranoid ravings is true. Is the government out to get them? And, or is it just in their heads? So that's the kind of thing that I would aim to model. So I'd aim to model the kind of the paranoid the delusions, the hallucinations, because that allows you to develop interesting themes in the fiction, mm. which, you know, depression and so on just doesn't really. Yes. I think for me, I'd go for something very much like uh, Secret Window, uh, based on one of the Stephen King stories. Effectively, more, well, the best way to put it would be a more realistic version of the dark half. You've, um, for those not familiar with the story... Essentially, a writer, because Hay King likes to write about himself, <laughs> realises that his wife is having an affair. And it's not until much later into the story that you realise, or the film rather, that they realise this has effectively broken um, his grip on reality. And that he believes to see this other person that claims that effectively, uh, the opening line being, you stole my story. Where he believes he's seen this other other person, this amateur writer, who's come forward with one of his old manuscripts, and he realizes it is actually himself, and that he's gradually bringing everyone else in around him, and convincing them that there is this person that is trying to cause him harm, that's threatening him to say that no, you've actually stolen this, and ultimately ends up with um, taking a rage out and um, killing his wife and um, her lover, and it's that that it's that. Portrayal has been very realistic from the start, and it has, you can see, this is the moment that causes. This isn't just spring out of the air randomly. This is something that has shattered this man's belief, shattered his grip on reality, and it has a concrete effect that you don't realise at all. There is nothing that hints that this is any form of delusion until right at the very end of the story. And the, the, if you want to see the, the kind of completely pulpy take on that instead, one of the classic amicus portmanteau films, uh, The House That Drip Blood, they, uh, I think the first segment in that is, is about a writer and his wife moving into the house. Um, and he starts writing about this, this character that he's been inspired by, this mad strangler, which, you know, turns out to be kind of an extension of his own psyche. Huh. Now, if we're talking writers in houses, we're talking Stephen King. Got oh, yeah, the shining, yes. Jack Torrance. Yes. In the bar, the deserted bar. Hello, Lloyd. Oh, God, I'd like a drink. drink. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is, that, that, that's the kind of insanity that I would seek to model. I mean, yeah. See, I, I wouldn't, I, I interpret that very much as being that's the hotel manifesting something from his memory rather than it being his own insanity. But, but the nice thing is it's completely ambiguous. Yeah, it's, 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 it's very much the audience makes their own mind up. You've always been yeah. a caretaker, so, you know, that, that, you know, seeing themselves in the picture from long ago. And yes. There's a lot of ambiguity in that, quite what, what is going on here. I'm not quite sure, and that's fine. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that just kind yeah. of builds on the whole theme of but, uncertainty and madness. I, and pers- personally, I always find ambiguity more frightening than, mm. you know, things that are explained. Oh, definitely. Mm. It's how Robert Aikman's stuff works so effectively. Yeah. 
but definitely the the film handles that a lot better than the book. The book is very much a case of a straight down the line. This is what's happening. But what's what's interesting me about this this discussion that we've just had, which I wasn't expecting to come out of it, <laughs> is the realization that while Call of Cthulhu does quite a good job of modelling you know horror movie insanity and horror story insanity, there's not necessarily a lot of it in Lovecraft. No, I don't. I don't think not, so. Not, not this People style. talk a lot about it, but I don't think there is greatly. No, I mean his his characters quite often go mad uh, as a climactic thing, but yes, this this delusional state. You know, I, I, I I'm probably overlooking something you know really core in Lovecraft's writings, but I can't I can't think of any. <laughs> Let us know on the website all the stupid <laughs> things we've said <laughs> and how we've totally missed the point of Lovecraft's writing. I mean, shall we, shall we move on from there to yeah. talking about uh, how madness is handled in Call of Cthulhu specifically? And before we move on to you know, the, the discussion about the new mechanics in 7th edition, let's, let's just recap on how insanity is handled in older versions or you know, in the original Call of Cthulhu. One of the things that grabbed me, and I can remember sitting in my lounge in Plymouth in, in the late 80s and reading Call of Cthulhu, uh, role-playing game, and the thing that really grabbed me was that your maximum sanity was equal to 99 minus your Cthulhu mythos. So the very thing you were trying to find out about, the more you found out about it, the lower your sanity got and the closer you got to being taken out of the game. And I thought that that kind of contradiction was was wonderful. It features very little in the game because people so rarely get Cthulhu mythos skill which is high enough to have any impact yeah that, that's a good point i mean yeah that I mean, to some extent that's always puzzled me a little bit in in campaigns that you know there isn't necessarily the opportunity in most games for cthulhu mythos to go up to more than you know a, a few percent I've, I've seen very few characters with more than you know about it seems 10, almost unwritten rule that cthulhu mythos skill won't go above about 20 percent. yeah but why not I think the highest we got after playing... You got. Well, yeah, I got. Yeah, okay, <laughs> me is all me. Um, after we did Escape from Innsmouth and then the first few chapters of Master of Neartholotep, um, plus also Walker in the Waste. You got pretty high. Uh, about 47 was the highest I got. Wow. Okay. And I think you had a high power, and I think that was impacting on your... Oh, yeah, I had a power of 18. ...sanity yeah. score, wasn't it? Yeah, I started with, uh, with a sanity of 90. Um, got up to 96 after the D8 reward at the end of the first chapter of Walker and then ended on 12 at the end of it. <laughs> and the thing is, having a high Cthulhu Mythos skill, it doesn't make your players particularly powerful or particularly more effective in the game. No, apart from I mean, when they, they learn loads of spells. I mean, there are, a few, there are a few options in 7th in edition, but let's, yeah. let's, say, let's say if talking about the Cthulhu Mythos skill sure. uh, for, for a future episode hmm. and then stick to madness for the moment. The, the core thing of the um, sanity is you, you're given a sanity score um, based on straight on your POW, which is then a sliding scale, which can go up with keeper rewards at the ends of uh, scenarios, but usually for um, descending downward for encountering mundane things such as dead bodies or for encountering mythos, monsters, ghosts, ghouls, gods, and so on. Yeah, I mean that, that's that's almost again struck me as being something that that's quite interesting about it. That's become a, a an unwritten assumption of of most games since then, which is you know the, the real world mundane horrors have the same kind of psychological impact 
as uh, as mythos horrors. Third, you know, encountering these mind-bending entities, these things that should not be, these you know abominations that that warp the very nature of space and time and undermine your your belief that in, in a humanocentric universe. That they have the same kind of impact, you know, as you know, say, stumbling across a dead body in a woods, hmm. which. It keeps it keeps things nice and simple in the game. Certainly, I mean, you know, it, it keeps sanity as a fairly abstracted stat and makes it easy to manage. I suppose one unintended consequence of that is that, to some extent, it almost makes mythos horrors mundane. Yeah, it's they should have a different degree of severity, definitely. But you do run the risk then of almost trivialising what is something that would um, shatter your sanity or shatter your worldview. That all of a sudden a loud noise makes you jump oh make a sand roll no it's there should be a certain cutoff point but that's going to be really down to the keeper to decide what is something that's a shock and that's partly could be settled by the likes of occupation now, for instance policeman or soldier isn't going to find the presence of a dead body as shocking as something like a haberdasher yeah. yeah. Unless he's got some very extraordinary hobbies. And has been on several Cthulhu Mythos campaigns before. <laughs> I actually like the fact that it's one thing, um, not just for simplicity. The, the sanity rating reflects how you deal with um, difficulties in life. As a person going out into the world, whether it's encountering a, a horribly mutated corpse in your living room, I, I, I don't think that meeting a deep one is necessarily going to be any more shocking and difficult to cope with than than that. I, uh, sort of. I, I may, Maybe a deep one is a, uh, a fairly basic example, but I think, you know, and it's certainly reflected by the much higher sanity roles involved, but, you know, encountering, you know, an, el- an elder god or, or some kind of disruption in the, the nature of space and time, something that shows you the multidimensional nature of the universe, something that, that shows you your, your minuscule place in the cosmos, I think presents much more of an existential terror. Um, it's not just a question of the shock, it's not a question of the drama involved, but it's a question of something that's fundamentally changing your worldview, something that's, you know, warping your sense of importance, something that's that's just changing the very nature of reality. And I think in the game, when you are driven insane by a Cthulhu mythos source, you gain Cthulhu mythos skill points. Yes. And encountering something like a god like you just mentioned is going to be a massive sanity loss, which is almost certainly going to drive you over the edge in one go. Encountering a corpse, yeah, I know somebody did that recently, and you know, then I think it had a pretty profound effect on them. Yeah, that's true. You know, for quite a long time. But I, I suppose it's not the quantitative effect that I'm, I'm talking about. It's the qualitative, qualitative effect. The fact that it's, it's something fundamentally different. It's, it with, with, having, the, with the mythos thing, it's not just the shock. It's the, 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 the paradigm shift. But involved. if I have two scales on my character sheet, are they not just numbers, you know, two scales that are rated 1 to 100 rather than one scale that's rated 1 to 100? And I'm going to look on oh, 53 on one and 26 on the other all my paradigm shifters has moved more. I, I think you, you look at your character's experiences and you'll, you portray it appropriately. I'm not, I'm not sure having splitting into two necessarily makes people role play that more effectively. No, and, and yeah, as I said, I think, you know, fixing it mechanically that way in Call of Cthulhu would be tricky and a mess. And... I think the rise in yeah. Cthulhu mythos points, I remember a guy 
um, in a psychiatric unit that I talked to. Um, so I worked for a little while in a psychiatric unit. He looked at me and said, yeah, but getting a gas bill for you is not a problem, is it? You know, you get a gas bill and you open it. Maybe you can pay it, maybe you can't, but it's not a problem. Getting a gas bill for us, he said, looking at himself and the other guys in the room. That's like a major thing. That's like something we, you know, he couldn't cope with it. Um, so it's like every day, what, what to most people, little everyday things become blown up out of, out of portion, mis construed, um, misunderstood, too much to cope with. And I think whatever source has tipped you over the edge, that's the effect it can have on, on your life, really. And mm. that, ins- that going indefinitely insane, temporarily insane or whatever is a reflection of that. Okay. Um, going back to something you, you touched on a few moments earlier, um, the, the, you know, the, the idea that you gain Cthulhu mythos from insanity uh is pretty core to to call of cthulhu but you know there, there are a number of ways that your characters can learn about mythos through you know reading books through you know direct transmission of information from from mythos entities but but these insane insights into the true nature of the universe are pretty key to it yeah i don't know that you get cthulhu mythos from as a result of going insane you do mechanically i've taken it that what you've seen is so significant. You, you've had a glimpse of the reality of the, of the, the universe, and that has had an impact on your, your knowledge of the universe, which is reflected in your Cthulhu Mythos skill. It's not the fact that it's driven you insane, but that's the two go hand in hand. Hmm. Yeah, it's very yeah. much cause and, cause and effect. So now that we've had a, a quick look at you know, the way that you know, insanity has traditionally worked in Call of Cthulhu, let's take a look at some of the new mechanics in Call of Cthulhu 7th edition. So, Paul, you, you, you've made quite a few changes here. No, you haven't changed fundamentally the way it works, but you've added a few new options and so on, which you know, personally I found quite interesting and exciting. I mean, you know, what, what, for you, you know, what, what stands out for you as kind of the biggest changes here? Well, there's a selection of changes. I guess the biggest change that Mike and I were kind of keen to put in was that when your character went insane, you weren't taken out of the game. Yes. That seemed a major flaw in the game. Temporary insanity was okay because keepers would just run that for a, you know a few minutes or a few rounds or a little while, and then they say, okay, now you're better. You can kind of play your character how you want. Permanent insanity was okay because you were just taken out of the game, but that was kind of a long process and quite unusual. The indefinite insanity, I saw a lot of keepers, whatever the rule book said, I saw quite a lot of keepers flounder when that happened because it was, it was a long-term effect and often they weren't really sure what to do with it. You know, should I let this player carry on playing their character? They're insane for a little while. But then how do, how do we keep this running in the game? So um, yeah. what we've built into 7th edition is um, kind of support for allowing characters, players to carry on playing their character. So, so how specifically have you done this? Okay, well, perhaps we should touch upon the actual rules for yeah. insanity in, in yeah. 7th edition. All right, yes. So initially, one small thing, whenever you fail a sanity roll, Keeper can inflict some momentary occurrence upon you. So perhaps you scream out in an involuntary action. If you're holding, if they're holding a gun, maybe they drop the gun. Maybe they accidentally squeeze a shot off. 
or throw the gun at the enemy as I remember doing once. <laughs> Great. So, so, um, so, so does this happen every time? Yeah. Whenever you fail a sanity roll, if the keeper kind of feels it's, it, it would be interesting to have it happen, the keeper can just throw an involuntary action, just a momentary thing at you. Cool. So, I mean, you mentioned that example, Matt, of throwing the gun. I mean, is it, you, you, you've played quite a lot of um, 7th edition with Paul and oh, with yes. you know, End of the Club. I mean, are there any other examples that you can remember of, uh, of this happening? Um, involuntary actions, definitely. I mean, there was one incident where we were particularly trying to be quiet and seeing, I think it was a, it was a monster of some description. I think it was a Wendigo off from afar. Um, that, of course, they let out this gasp when they saw this thing turn around. You haven't seen us, but then, of course, when someone screams at the top of their lungs in an otherwise fairly quiet forest, you bet that Wendigo is going to see you immediately after that. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, it, it certainly facilitates action in that respect, but, yeah, it's it's dealing with the consequences of that, of that action there afterwards that can be the interesting part. And that character may have only lost one point. They may not be insane. They just lost it for that split second. And that brings some meaning to some repercussion of actually just losing a point or just failing a sanity roll. Yes, because otherwise, you know, it can feel like a bit of a damp squib sometimes, or you know, at least it can just feel like you're you're getting chiselled away bit by bit with no real repercussions. Oh, it was definitely small erosion, but say it definitely built up over time. We then have a sanity loss of varying degrees, which may trigger and and the the triggering of temporary insanity, um, losing. Um, more than five points in one go or indefinite insanity losing um, 20% is, is it remains pretty much the same as the old edition uh, with one small change uh, that the loss of 20% is not over one hour it's over one in inverted commas one day it's kind of until you've had time to rest and recoup your wits so it might be getting a good night's sleep it might be sitting down in a safe place and kind of getting your head together. But whilst you're in that, let's say, haunted mansion creeping around, if you're up there all night awake, you're not gonna get you're not gonna get your head back together. If you've lost you know ten percent of your points earlier a few hours ago and then you lose the next ten percent, you know, you're flipped out. Mm. When you do become insane, temporary or indefinite, the first thing that happens is a loss of control which we term a bout of madness. Well, you, control is quite an important aspect of this. I mean, you, in a conversation with me, certainly some time back, and I think you may even have mentioned this in the, the rules, um, you, you talked about you know, a game of Call of Cthulhu being almost a battle between the keeper and the player for control of the character. Yeah, that's kind of how I see it. So for that momentary loss that we talked about a minute ago, Matt, Mm -hmm. when you have total control of your character, when you fail a sanity roll, I get to say what your character does for that moment. Mm -hmm. When your character goes temporarily or indefinitely insane, you have a bout of madness, and for a short time, I get to dictate what your character does, and they're things that you might not like. But then Mm -hmm. after that's kind of, you know, after you've recovered from that, then you're back in control again. I remember the attempt to try and summon the dark young in tatters of the king was a prime example of that. (laughs) Slicing, slice, slicing yourself up. The next thing you realise, you're getting down naked and dancing with the uh, with the goat spawn, etc. Yeah, you've probably done that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know so me so well. <laughs> <laughs> so this the bout of madness. I didn't want it to last too long. I didn't want the keeper to take control of the player's character for too long a duration of 
real world game time. Yes. So I didn't want the player to sit there for an hour with nothing to do. Um, just for, sit there for, you know, a couple of minutes watching his player, his or her player do something, you know, out of their control. Um, so there's, there's two forms this can take. One is where the character goes insane in a scene with other characters and, you know, it might be a combat scene which is going round by round. So if it's that kind of situation, we have a bout of madness, um, round by round. So it's maybe D10 rounds, and um, that's how long it lasts. And then once those D10 rounds are over, you're back in control of your character. So but, but, are, what, what happens during that D10 rounds? The keeper can either choose or roll on a chart. The kind of things that we have on the chart are, well, a, a great one is violence. A red mist sends on the investigator and explode in a spree of uncontrolled violence and destruction directed at their surroundings. Allies and foes alike are 1d10 rounds. So, so when things like this come up, I mean, do you give these as directions to the player as I'd say run with this or do you as the keeper uh, say what happens? Whichever suits you best. Some keepers are going to, with their group, going to want to tell the player what is happening and take total control. But I think quite often they're going to just give that instruction to the player. Yeah. Um, so I think you have to tailor that to your group. Yeah. I mean, personally, you know, I'd, I'd find the latter option more fun because, you know, that way I wouldn't be sitting there watching my character getting played. You know, I'd just be following directions. So in brief, some of the other um, things apart from violence, uh, we have fainting, Lovecraft favourite, yeah. <laughs> uh, fleeing, hysterical outburst. Psychosomatic disability, you know, um, psychosomatic blindness, deafness, and so on. Amnesia, um, you know, how did I get here? Why am I here? A phobia or mania, which has another um, whole selection to draw from. And one other which draws upon uh, the backstory, which is significant person. So the, there are various aspects of the character's backstory on the second character sheet, if you like, one of which is significant person, which the player has probably identified for their character. And the keeper can just grab that sheet, have a quick look. Oh, your um, mother is a very important character. Okay. You're looking around. Who's that woman just over there? Drawing back the hood. Of, My God, your mother's a cultist. <laughs> um, just to bring in something, you know, that, that kind of insane delusion for a short time. The other way it can manifest is as a bout of madness, but as a summary. So if your character is on their own, this could last for quite a long time. But it's summarised by the keeper. So you've gone off, maybe you've split off from the others. You've gone down into the, you've, you've crept up to the attic. Something mind-blasting occurs up there. You encounter some terrible um, revelation in a, in a chest that you open in the attic. We roll on the chart. Again, 1d10, we've got things like, um, amnesia, robbed, battered, violence. I would summarize this uh, if we had uh, robbed. Okay, well, you don't know what's happened. I'll tell the other characters that they lose track of you. You wake up in an alley. It's, the light's just breaking. You're covered in well, there's some dried blood on your shirt. Your hands are all scuffed up. You don't know how that happened. Your wallet's missing. Um, you've got some strange symbol carved into your arm. Don't know where that came from. That reminds, again, reminds me very much of the playtest experience we have with Walker in the Wastes uh, when the uh, trying to get the tablets to activate. 
going out to collect as much blood as possible and then saying, oh, well, we'll deal with that in a sec, so if you wouldn't leave the room. And then coming back in and seeing the expression on everyone else's face, saying, what the hell happened to you? Well, as far as I'm concerned, I was just walking in with blood in some jerry cans that I'd collected. Yeah. The summary plays more on the character's backstory. There's more options for playing on the character's backstory um, and drawing those things in. So it sounds like you know, you've got all those options, and some of them may be more appropriate to the situation than others. As the rules are written, do you, do you always roll randomly? or yeah, you can, No, it's very you, much that you can roll randomly, but if you roll something and that feels totally inappropriate to the situation, then it's, it's just a guide for the keeper. If the keeper thinks, oh, it would be great here to have the character flee in panic, they can just go for that one. If they think it would be great here to have the... Um, if this is something that's likely to affect the character's ideology and beliefs, they can go for that one. And when it's affecting a character's aspect of their backstory, such as ideology beliefs, significant person, significant place perhaps, the keeper can take the player's second sheet with their backstory on and make a revision to it. So what, what kinds of things are we talking about? When I kind of I gave that slightly over-the-top one about the mother being a cultist. You yeah. could now, you're now convinced that your mother's a cultist. You're now convinced that your mother is um, in league with the, the devil. Have you got any experience of this in playing that? I know I've added um, connections and aspects onto other people's sheets. Um, normally, for instance, um, Cosmic Horror being one of the examples that uh, when confronted with X, was a bit like an, basically an extreme version of a phobia that it's prompted well can prompt sanity checks again but that's very much tailored to the instance of when the particular phobia is picked up but, but in some ways this almost harks back to what we were talking about earlier with um your know, encounters with these things that should not be causing fundamental changes in how you perceive the universe yeah again, cause and effect yeah you know, in a way this is now you know this is something that the rules actually support that you know by by encountering you know something that completely changes your view of what reality mm-hmm. is then there is actually something that goes down in your character sheets showing that that perhaps this has caused you to lose your religious faith or you know mm-hmm. see you know see a safe place now as being threatening yeah because I, I wanted to those those kind of backstory aspects to be sentences which through play the keeper could corrupt um so you might start off with a stereotypical one perhaps you know i have a strong faith in the lord the bible guides my life and then that can slowly be eaten away I've lost all my faith in the Bible. Um, I'm cast adrift. And then it might be eaten away again. There are demons everywhere trying to kill me. <laughs> uh, and then eaten away again. You know, my life is a crusade against evil. I must thwart the Antichrist or something. You know, so you can kind of keep that theme, not just scrub it out and put something else, but modify but kind it. of modify it, corrupt it. And that is symbolic of mental illness. I think that 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 everything the person had and loved is kind of taken away and but, but given back in a corrupted way. Yes, tainted. Do you, do you want to explain the other aspect of how backstory fits into sanity? We should probably mention that you know, the other thing that can change uh, backstory like this is uh, what is it? Severe critical wounds or like mortal wounds, mortal where mortal where, wounds, where yeah. your your character is severely injured, and one of the backstory elements is called wounds and injuries. It was it was always on the, the character sheet under scars or something like so that. So it could be something like pronounced limp or yeah. you're missing an eye. Yeah. 
we've touched upon what these these backstory elements or how they get changed, but they, they play another role in the Santee system. Do you, do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, in in the downtime, in the what we've called the um, investigator yeah. development phase, uh, when you basically when you do your skill ticks um, and perhaps get sanitary rewards, or, or there's a there's a period then when you can perhaps take some time out, perhaps go on holiday, go on a spiritual retreat. So, so if your important person, for example, is your know, mentor who always you know, helped you make sense of the world before. Uh, you can go off and, and get you know their view on things, and they can perhaps help you know set things in perspective again, or get you back on the right path. That's a good example. Yeah, the character then makes a, a sanity roll, and if they pass, they can recoup some sanity. They've managed to kind of um, see the light, if you like. Um, they've managed to kind of stabilise themselves, and this person or this aspect of their backstory has been a been a been a help in that. If they fail, that backstory connection is corrupted by the keeper, so that mm. they're totally alienated from their um, old mentor. Getting back to Bounce of Madness, you've got you've got an idea in there as well about um, how Bounce of Madness, once you know your your sanity is on the ropes, can be triggered again. Once that initial bout of madness, which is also termed the Red Mist, Frenzy, Freakout, or Panic Attack. Um, has passed, so it's a kind of temporary thing, perhaps a few rounds or a few hours. Um, once that's passed, control is given back to the, the player completely of, of their character, and, and most char- most a lot of players are going to continue to play that character as slightly unstable and, and so on, just in, in, in their role play. They're encouraged to do that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think Matt needs any encouragement for that. <laughs> I don't know what you mean, twitch, twitch. But they're now kind of on a knife edge. They are, they are classed as insane. If they lose a single point of sanity, they now have another bout of madness. So they're, they're very kind of easily tipped over again. It doesn't yeah. take much to, to trigger them. On the knife edge. Also key to this is delusions. So whilst any character is classed as insane, and they're, they're classed as insane for the duration of their temporary or indefinite insanity, and that could be months, all that they know about, all the player knows about the world, is what the keeper says. And if the keeper decides to present delusions, the player doesn't necessarily know what's real and what isn't. You know, if, if I were a player in a game and, you know, you sort of, you know, let, let's go back to your previous example, you know, see, see my mother pulling back the hood. Um, and, you know, I, I as a player think that's not right. What can I do about that? If you want to confront it, you can shake your head and, and, and try and convince your shout at yourself, perhaps, and try and convince yourself you're not my mother, you're not my mother. At which point you can um, ask for, or the keeper might grant you a reality check. Reality check, yes. Which, simply another sanity role. You're kind of testing your own sanity. This time, if you make it, yes, you've kind of seen through this. Hold on, no, it's not my mother. It's just somebody who perhaps looks like her, perhaps doesn't look like her. You know, I'm in the alley, I'm confronted by a ghoul. Surely this can't be real. I shake my head. No, it's just some you know, homeless person approaching me. But if you fail it, yeah, it is your mother. And, I mean, delusion of your mother. You don't know. Perhaps it is your mother. And you undergo another, you lose a point of sanity and another bout of madness seizes you. In my experience, it always has been my mother that it would always be either I fail the role, consequently lose more sanity, or I pass and lose more as I realise, no, it really is my mother that's there. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, of course, that thing you're testing whilst you're insane, that thing approaching you out in the alley, it might be a ghoul. Yes. But at least you realise it's not part of your madness, but at that point you're you're kind of screaming and running down the street <laughs> or whatever anyway. Something else that happens, if I remember correctly, while you're, um, say, indefinitely insane, it is that it, it can have an effect on what happens when you try pushing rolls. Yeah, I think we touched on this in an earlier episode. When you're pushing a roll, uh, if you fail the, the second roll, the pushed roll, you're trying harder to do something, the keeper can hit you with a consequence, a negative consequence. And normally that would be, you know, you might take damage, you know, something bad might happen. Um, the person you're talking to at a bar might actually be a cultist or, you know, something like that. Um, if you're insane, then it just gives the keeper more stuff to work with, really. More rope to hang the player with. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. You mentioned before the idea of uh, phobias and manias as well. Do you just want to explain a bit about those? Yeah, we've put in a big couple of big lists of uh, 100 manias and 100 phobias. It used to be mostly phobias, but it seems to me that manias are just as much fun, a compulsion mm. to, to do something. Um so now you haven't just got arachnophobia, you've got, I don't know what the equivalent is, arachnomania. Um, you know, you've got an <laughs> obsession and love of yeah. spiders and you're driven to kind of collect them and look after them and so on. I don't know, something crazy like that. But that is crazy in my mindset. I hate spiders. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're cute. We've had this but discussion I mean, the before. Washing one, I mean, that's, <laughs> yes. uh, um, that, that one, um, you know, constantly washing and constantly cleaning oneself. Out, out, damn spot. That, that, that kind of um, obsession. It's, it's, the phobia one is is okay. You're kind of afraid of something and flee from it. But the the mania one is is more active in play because the you know, they're, they're constantly trying to do it and constantly trying to to play on it. So so if if you've got a player um, who is perhaps being recalcitrant about the idea of actually playing this this mania, what 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 what's available to the keeper to kind of bring this into play? Uh, during play, whilst they're not insane, they can they can play it up or not as they wish. But once they're insane, if they confront a closet full of spiders, let's say they've hidden in the cupboard and there are spiders in there and they've got arachnophobia, anything they sort of try and do whilst they're in the proximity of the source of their phobia, they're on a penalty die for any actions, aside from, I think, fighting the source of the phobia or fleeing from it. So if they try and do anything else, they're at, they're at a penalty. And with mania? With a mania, it's kind of you were indefinitely insane, but you were in control of your character and um, you fled, you know, through the first door and it ended up being a bar. Mm. Um, and you had dipsomania? Yep. Then you would be, if you didn't act on it, then you're at a penalty until you've kind of acted on it, you know, or managed to kind of get yourself away from that environment in some way. So there's a kind of a mechanical incentive to kind of get your character kind of involved in, in that thing. Like I say, adhere to it, all bad stuff will happen. Yeah. So, I mean, have you got any examples of this, map that have come up during play? Again, thinking back to Walker in the Waste, it did stray into a little bit more of a comical effect, but that was just how it turned out, that how I'd phrased the particular question. Um, I'd ended up being afraid of the dark. And there was one particular chapter where we were out in Arabia. It was a dig site out in the middle of nowhere. And, of course, being terrified of the dark, I wanted anything to um, to keep light. So I'd have the oil lamp lit all the time. 
and it progressively got worse that I wanted someone around me all the time. So it was even coming coming down, to, which is what led to the humorous bouncing back and forth between us, where I even wanted to pay one of the guards on our tent just to come inside and stay with me so I wasn't on my own while it was dark outside. <laughs> which led to a comical misunderstanding. Yeah, which I was trying to basically um, solicit the guard. <laughs> but, but, I mean, no, that, carry on going on there. Yeah. But that, I mean, this is going to be a complete aside, but that, that sort of touches upon... Something that, you know, not, not that I'm saying it's, it's the case here. I mean, that sounds like, you know, a, a comic set of circumstances that arose, mm. arose organically. But, but something that, that, you know, I, I really tend to dislike myself is, is madness being played for laughs in games. It is yeah. not a comic thing. No. So, so Paul, I mean, you, you, you're coming at it from, from the Call of Cthulhu side. I mean, you've run a lot of Call of Cthulhu games at conventions and so on. I mean, is this something you've seen a lot of in the, the, the Cthulhu environment? Comedy is a sort of matter of taste, and I think the people that set out to make it comedic, it often doesn't really work. When it when it just the situation just becomes funny, yes. I think you know it can be hilarious. I mean, among your group, I think horror and comedy kind of go hand in hand, and um, the madness factor and the things that kind of the situation kind of compounds by the madness and. Uh, Whilst one doesn't necessarily set out to make it funny, I mean, it's almost unavoidable that it's, there's going to be some great laughs coming out of it. But, but I think there's a fundamental difference between, you know, for example, the, Matt, the, the example Matt gave of, you know, the, the misinterpretation of, you know, come into my tent, little guard, mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, someone just running around going, oh, look at me, I'm so wacky. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... That's one of the things that I hope with the uh, the keeper controlling the character during the bout of madness, or or kind of guiding or dictating the the character's actions during the bout of madness, then handing control back to the player. So the, the player isn't kind of compelled to to run around with their teddy bear being absolutely mad for the rest of the game, which is just unplayable. Well, or just probably just irritating for everybody else. <laughs> not, not unless you're playing Brideshead Revisited Cthulhu. <laughs> the players should be kind of struggling to kind of keep control of their character and you know portray their downward spiral largely try and keep control of their character i think setting it up so that the keeper is trying to take that control away and ultimately with with permanent insanity player is handing the character sheet over to the keeper and permanent insanity is no longer the, the player's character anymore it's kind of lost he's got away from us jack it's that um, scene at the end of Brazil. <laughs> yes. He's no longer in control of his character. So just for comparison, uh, let, let's talk about you know some other horror games that we've played and, and enjoyed and the way that they tackle the concept of insanity you know, mechanically and, and thematically within the game. One that, that stands out for me for being interesting uh, just because it's, it's quite different from the Call of Cthulhu experience, is cult. The thing that makes cult interesting to me is the fact that it, it brings in something that I've not seen in any other uh, horror game, uh, which, you know, it, there may be other games out there that do it that I'm just not familiar with, but the, it brings in this, this moral dimension as well. It, in some ways, a fairly uneasy mix, but thematically it's very appropriate to the game, because the game is it's a game of Gnostic horror. It's a game, you know, very much rooted in, you know, everything from Gnostic Christianity, Philip K. Dick, Clive Barker, about, you know, reality being an illusion, uh, a, a prison for mankind and about us trying to see through it. Let's go through it without the cheery optimism. Yes. <laughs> the morality plays quite a big part in that. 
because fundamentally, you know, your characters can break through this illusion and become enlightened, you know, uh, almost, almost like Neo at the end of the Matrix, mm-hmm. by either you know, coming to a, a, a sense of spiritual perfection or by becoming so completely debased that they're, they're out of it. But the insanity system in this is... Uh, what's it called? The balance, is it? Mental balance. Mental balance. Mental balance is affected by, you know, not just the things you see, but the things you do um, and the practices you follow. <laughs> it's a lot more easy to walk the dark path than it is the path of light. Yeah. Vastly more easy that way. That's one of the, the odd things about cult, which is they present this path of life to kind of holy enlightenment and so on. But the fact that, you know, the things you see will drag you down so much. So, you know, seeing a nephrite or you know, mm-hmm. a, a razor eye or something like that. It's got to knock you back down. You'll need, you know, months of meditation and good works or something like that to get past it. Mm-hmm. If you survive the encounter, that is. Yes. <laughs> I want to play Cult Reloaded. <laughs> tell, tell me about Cult Reloaded. Well, you, you likened it to The Matrix. Oh, oh, yeah. oh you, you, yeah. you, you seem to imply that there's more than one Matrix film. What, what is this madness? It's true. It's true. <laughs> Well, I, uh, I I didn't like the first Matrix film, so anyway. <laughs> you don't like anything. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Apart, like apart from if it's, apart from you it's really like demented. Rings. You don't like the Matrix. I don't like Terry. Why Patrick. are you even here? No, but I'm, I agree with you on that. I hate these books. <laughs> I really, really hate these books. <laughs> <laughs> so come back, George. <laughs> don't get me started on Brian Lumley. <laughs> are we going to edit that out? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> But I think I, one game which I think handles madness very interestingly, um, it sort of touches upon what we were talking about before about the difference between you know exposure to cosmic horror and you know, everyday horrors. Is Unknown Armies. Mm-hmm. For those of you who haven't played Unknown Armies, it's got this concept of madness meters. Madness is broken down into five subsets. Uh, you know, five arenas, uh, violence, unnatural, helplessness, self and isolation. That's it, correctly. Yeah. You've got two tracks with each one. So the idea is that, you know, as bad things happen, uh, depending on how you react to them, you know, how you make your sanity role equivalent, you either become inured to the stimulus or you become sensitized to it. If you become sensitized to it, eventually, you know, it just drives you completely insane. But if you become inured to it, you become basically a stone-cold sociopath, uh, <laughs> unable to have the, the human warmth and compassion, you know, to, for example, you know, uh, ascend to certain uh, levels of avatars. Is that right? Yeah, it caps certain skills. Yeah. But also, there is the element of cult in there, though, that as you, for instance, with cult, that as you get far enough down or up the mental balance scale that you can start to do things, with unknown armies, if you get to five failed notches in any one particular area, you could warp that and come out the other side as an adept. Yes, that's true. So it does have an ability on what you can then do in game as well. So you might be you might be technically insane, but when those dots get wiped off the sheet, it's then replaced with an av- and then replaced with an adept skill instead. Another one that stands out for me, bigger you know, in that it does interesting things, is Gumshoe and its various, mm. you know, its variants. Mm. Uh, you know, Trade of Cthulhu, Esoterists, Fear Itself, Lies So they all use the same sanity and... Uh, Tra- Trail of Cthulhu is slightly different. Yeah, Tra- Trail works differently from the other Gumshoe games. Um, originally, the Esoterists and Fear Itself has been the first to just had a stability system which works very much like sanity up until a point. It's a single pool that gets eroded, and as it hits various either negative levels or zero, and then anything below that down to minus 12, 
is where you start having traditional insanities. They do have some interesting touches that it's like some of the delusions are that the player is removed from the room and then you discuss what their insanity is with everyone else. Um, So that, for instance, no, actually the character's been a woman all the time. No, they're actually married to that other character over there. A bit like how it's played out in the public world sometimes. Yeah, when we play-tested... Fear fear itself. Yeah, Yeah, play-tested Fear itself. We had that... um, Was it Robin? Somebody was was a biker... Yeah, and um, they they were driven insane and had to leave the room, and the rest of the players sat there, and we came up with the idea that actually there were no motorbikes, only mopeds. I don't think that's what we went for, though. Um, I think I think you know, that was one of the ideas we discussed. I think what we actually went for was that the character he thought was his wife was actually his sister. Which, yeah. which, which, yeah, as they were camping in the woods at the time, led to some really creepy scenes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they were related. Yeah, yeah so she was um, talking about their mum. Yes. So when he came back in, it was like, oh, mum's been on the phone. He's like, what? Yeah, that was, that was good. Yeah, that, that, I really like that. Yeah, I, I think that's absolute genius. Yeah, it, it's a great little tweak. Um, the, the difference between that and like the Trail of Cthulhu is that it adds in the sanity alongside that which is how ken height puts it is how um, armitage could have read the necronomicon and still been employable that stability is the short-term version of sanity in that it's the here and now and how how much of a grip you've got onto and the situation whereas sanity is your connection to your homocentric universe so it's as you gradually lose that connection to what makes you human that you could still be a fully functioning aka I've got a high stability score, cultist with zero sanity. But it's another way to replicate the same effect. Yeah. Another another game which I find interesting from the sanity point of view is Cthulhu Dark. Um, Cthulhu Dark, in, you know, in, in a lot of respects, doesn't do anything different from Call of Cthulhu in that it's you know, a degeneration into insanity, you make sanity rolls and so on. What, what's, what's interesting about it is that san- insanity is the only score your character has in the game. You don't have hit points, you don't have you know, a- anything else to, to keep track of. You, you have a name, you have an occupation, and you have your insanity score. And you know the, the the game is fundamentally about you know your your, your descent into insanity and your your attempts to to fight that and and keep control, uh, and you know it is the absolutely purest distillation of that. There's one element that I remember from a particular playtest that the rules can facilitate a moment or various moments where you can derail scenarios by trying to regain stability um, yeah. sanity back, such as. Oh, we found the um, the core of the mythos, um, uh, the, the heart of the mythos element of the scenario. I burn it. <laughs> oh well, at least I gain um, sanity back. But the rest of the scenario is dead. Oh well. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, that, that that was just shit scenario design. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've learnt my lesson. <laughs> hey, we had a good time doing it. <laughs> we we managed to win a Dorwood camp, a Dorwood adventure. Woohoo! <laughs> Save savor that rare grace while yes. it lasts. Yes, I, I've, I've rewritten it since then, so that's not an option. Mutter, mutter, mutter. <laughs> the other game which sort of does that, though um, you know, not explicitly, that, that's got that as an option, uh, is Dead of Night. One th- you know, important aspect of Dead of Night is the fact that you tailor what all the individual elements mean to a scenario. So in, in Dead of Night, your character has a pool of survival points. 
survival points are your plot immunity, so your character basically can't be killed or taken out of the game until he or she runs out of survival points. But survival points are also used for other things like getting re-rolls, you know, throwing uh, plot elements into the game, having just the right bit of equipment, stuff like that. One of the things that, that the, the GM does, or you know, whoever's writing the scenario does ahead of time, is work out what the survival points actually mean. For example, um, you could say, you know, if it's a traditional monster hunting game, that it's just the equivalent of hit points. Mm. So, you know, if you're in a punch-up and, and you lose it, then you're losing survival points. On the other hand, I've, I've run a scenario called Whispers, which is all about the psychological destruction of the characters. And so what I said for that was physical violence is completely unimportant to this game. You can have a punch up. It doesn't affect your, your, um, uh, your, your survival point score at all. Uh, anything, the only thing that can affect it is things that affect your, your character's psychological state. The characters were in the game in control until they, they basically ran out of sanity. And that's the point at which they were destroyed by their own fears. But out of the three of us, Matt, you're probably the most familiar with the storyteller system. Do, mm-hmm. do, you, do you want to explain a bit about how? That, that handles the, the concept of insanity? Yeah, there's a couple of different ways. Um, New World of Darkness and Old World of Darkness handle it somewhat differently. Um, New World is one that has a bit more diversity to it. That There's what's referred to as morality, which is different depending on what game you're playing, whether it be humanity for uh, Vampire the Requiem, whether it be wisdom for Mage the Ascension, etc., etc., that they have a what they call a hierarchy of sins, which are if your character does this, then make a roll if your humanity or morality score rather is at a particular level. Like for instance, if your humanity four, you can get away with let's say assault. For instance, you can punch someone up, you can beat them up, you can uh, commit theft, and it's not a problem for you. Murder at that point and such is or manslaughter is still an issue drop that down a couple of points, where you get to Humanity 2, yeah, you can quite happily murder and it's not so much of an issue. If it was casual killing, then yes, it's an, it's an issue. But if it was, no, I'm going to, uh, that guy has it coming, I'm going to go over and murder him, then you don't have to make the roll for it because you're already that far low. It's a bit like the hardened and failed notches in an anomalies to a point. Yes. But as you start losing those points of morality, then you run the risk of gaining derangements. This is a little bit like uh, one of the other game I was uh, ticking away in my head while you are mentioning uh, going through the list, is Savage Worlds, in that um, Deadlands Reloaded, for example, that uses a Savage World mechanic, has a skill in there called Guts, that if you, for instance, fail a fear check against a particular monster, you could pick up a phobia, and that in one of the Deadlands games we're playing at the minute, one girl has picked up so many phobias, it's silly, that she has just, they've been continually one failed roll after another, after another, after another, and she has a whole list of different phobias and arrangements that she's picked up. Similar in that sense with um, the storyteller system, that if you fail a morality check, the bump when you go down, say, for instance, from Humanity 6 to Humanity 5, that loss happens anyway if you fail the roll, but you have a second roll, which is if you um, have a degeneration roll, which is to see whether you pick up a derangement. If you fail that roll, which progressively becomes harder the lower your humanity score gets, you pick up derangements. So, I mean, if your humanity score bottoms out, is that like no, permanent insanity in Call of Cthulhu? Uh, we'll say all your character is just a. It also represents their connection to the beast in 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 Vampire. That there's this duality of man, or rather, man versus the beast, is what a vampire is. At that point, when you hit humanity zero, the beast is in control. You you kiss goodbye to the character. And it occurs to me as well that, you know, the other game that, that can be tailored to be a bit like that 
Um, in fact, you know, when we played it uh, together, Matt, this is exactly what I did. Uh, is Sorcerer. Yes. Uh, yeah. Because Sorcerer's got this humanity score, which again, you define thematically according to the game as to what it represents. And I played a very, or well, ran a very mythos uh, themed Sorcerer game, uh, which, which Matt played in. Cthulhu Noir. Uh, yes. yes. <laughs> and, and yeah, that, that we, we ended up defining humanity as, as sanity in that. Mm-hmm. And that ended up working very well. Even if the King in Yellow couldn't beat up a door. <laughs> you just won't let that go. <laughs> and of course, the other, the other game that is completely about madness, which slipped my mind until now, uh, is Don't Rest Your Head, where you're, you're basically playing an insomniac who, you know, his or her insomnia allows them to see through the, the veneer of reality and see the, the mad city and the truth beyond. Well, they're struggling to stay awake. But you, you have a madness ability, you know, the madness that this, this insomnia and this insight gives you allows you different ways of creating reality. So you can draw upon your madness in order to, to do unnatural, strange things. But on the other hand, the more you do that, the more it's likely to just drive you completely over the edge. Matt's talk of the, the loss of humanity and uh, the related insanity in, in White Wolf games just made me think of one thing which, which has to be mentioned, I think, and that's Patrick Bateman from American Psycho. Oh, yes. Um, and the whole descent in, well, not so much a descent into madness, this is a Pretty start cold. in complete madness <laughs> and then kind of spiralling down. Yeah, a, a, a complete loss of any nature of reality. There's a part towards the end. Are we talking about the book or the film here? I'm talking about the book. Yeah. There's a part towards the end when when you kind of question, has he actually been doing this stuff or not? Yes. Because he meets someone, I think, who, uh, it's 20 years since I read this, it's, um, who, who was supposed to be dead. Who I was supposed to be dead. Yeah. He was supposed to have killed them already. And then yeah. he meets them. And you begin to think, well, hold on, is this all just a fantasy in his head? And, and the book leaves that completely open. Yeah. That's and again, back, back to ambiguity. Yes. I think I lost a few points of Sam reading that, actually. That took me a while <laughs> to uh, just scrub my mind clean. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the film is pretty damn good. but I don't film, think I've read anything else as, uh, as, as, uh, so some that, of the, that got to me as much as that. Some of the scenes in that book, yeah, uh, the, the bit with the rat. Oh, anyway. I, I just read it, and I... No, it was a bit with the... Um, it, it got some clamps and some uh, batteries hooked, or the mains hooked up to it, or something, and uh, things exploded. And I just kind of read that and thought, okay, well, in a few weeks, the memory of this will have faded. And now, 20 <laughs> years later. <laughs> ah! <laughs> so that was about with insanity. <laughs> that is a fantastic. Absolutely not Okay, and with Paul's descent into insanity, I think this is a good as good a place as any to wrap that up. Yeah, we'll, we'll take him back to the comfort of his padded cell. Uh, so, so just a reminder that you can find us online at blasphemoustomes.com. Uh, we have comments enabled there. We also have the um, the Google Plus group there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're on Google Plus, take a look for the good friends of Jackson Elias. And you yeah, it's great. To, even if you don't come on and make a comment, it's just great to know that people are out there listening to it. We haven't kind of bothered setting up forums and all that malarkey so uh just nice to know that people are out there taking part and yeah, g-, g plus is a perfect environment for that anyway and yes people do use g plus it's not <laughs> just something that sits there as the anti-facebook and, and and you'll find that paul and matt are very approachable and and yeah i have good days <laughs> <laughs> yes yes <laughs> quick jump to scott's defense no, you're <laughs> <not enjoy it. laughs> okay yeah on that note Let's let's go away. (laughs) Alright, so we've been the good friends of Jackson Elias and we bid you good night. Cheerio and farewell.